0: In 2013, Ted and Connie Sullivan sought to move from New Jersey to Massachusetts to be closer to their special needs child's Boston hospitals. They found a beautiful home on five acres of land in Dover, Massachusetts. The sellers, Giuseppe and Rosalie Gagliardi, had lived at the home for a number of years and substantially renovated the home, specifically the kitchen and Tuscan-style three-season room. These renovations figured prominently in the marketing materials and also during the inspection and home showing. What the Gagliardi's failed to disclose was that they did not pull building permits for the renovation work, nor did they have the work inspected by the town building inspector. The Sullivans bought the house using a purchase and sale agreement containing various quote-unquote as-is provisions. These standard provisions are more or less meant to impose, as a matter of contract law, the ancient doctrine of caveat emptor, or let the buyer beware. Shortly after the Sullivans moved in, they discovered substantial latent defects in the renovation work, not just technical building code violations, legitimate structural problems that posed a substantial risk of collapse if not repaired. The repairs cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. When the Sullivans asked the Gagliardi's for information about the renovations, information that was requested by the town of Dover building inspector, the Gagliardi's refused to provide any information at all and instead destroyed virtually all of their records related to the renovations. The Sullivans filed suit. After four years of litigation, the case went to trial on claims for breach of the implied warranty of habitability, a relatively new cause of action in Massachusetts, and for violations of Chapter 93A, the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Act. After a two-week jury trial, the jury came back with a verdict in less than two hours. This case pits consumer rights and the safety and habitability of homes against the ancient doctrine caveat m tour this is sullivan versus gagliardi to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkopf Goodman. Today, we're looking at a case involving one of the most important transactions most people will ever make in their lives, the purchase of a home. In particular, what happens when your dream home becomes a nightmare? With me today is Peter McGlynn, the Director of our Litigation Department here at Bernkopf. Peter also happens to be my personal mentor and was gracious enough to have me with him on the Sullivan case. Peter and I represented the Sullivans in this case. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining.
1: Well, Bob, it's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to this. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: So, Peter, as you know, this show is going to proceed in two parts because the issues are so important and the case was so interesting on so many levels. For this episode, we're going to focus on the trial court proceedings, and on the next episode, we'll talk about the appeal. So let's start with the jury verdict. As I mentioned in the open, after a two-week trial, the jury comes back in less than two hours. The jury found in favor of the Sullivans on both claims, for the breach of the implied warranty of habitability and for violations of Chapter 93A the jury also awarded double damages on the Chapter 93A claim because they found that the Gagliardis had acted knowingly and intentionally with respect to their unfair and deceptive conduct in this case. As we know, this result was not a foregone conclusion. In order to prove the implied warranty claim, we had to prove that the sellers, the Gagliardis, were quote-unquote builder vendors. And in order to prove the Chapter 93A claim, we had to prove that the sale occurred in the course of quote-unquote trade or commerce. In other words, in the business context. On its face, this looked like the private sale of a home between private homeowners. How did you overcome these hurdles in this case, Peter?
1: Well, Bob, you're right. On its face, and when we first Uh, assessed the merits of this case, it did look like a private sale between individual sellers and individual buyers. But when you peel back the onion skin and you looked at what had transpired, not only with respect to this particular transaction, but also the transactions dating back four decades that had been uh, involving the uh, Gagliardi's, we saw and we argued uh, in front of the jury uh, that the Gagliardi's had a business model. This business model uh, that spanned 40 years uh, uh, involved the purchase, the sale, the renovation, the leasing uh, of of a number of different properties, as I recall, six separate properties where the Gagliardi's would take a a, a house or a two-family building, renovate it, improve the value, increase the, uh, the rental value, then eventually leverage that equity that they had built up in that house to buy another building. Uh, at least one uh, uh, commercial uh, building, the rest of them were multifamily residences, except for one uh, involving this house in Dover and another one in Weston. So they were able to, to use this business model to expand their wealth. They became quite wealthy as a result. and and. Uh, uh, the vast majority of their income on an annual basis was not from working in the construction business, which is what Mr. Gagliardi did with assistance from Mrs. Gagliardi, but the rental income that was generated from all of these rental properties that they had acquired over the past 40 years. So that was the... Uh, the um, The narrative that we were going to argue in front of the jury, and not only did the jury agree with us, but the judge did as well. He used that term business model when he denied uh, the defendant's uh, motions for directed verdict uh, at the uh, close of our evidence as well as at the close of the trial. So, uh, and these uh, activities, when we get into the appellate uh, uh, portion of this podcast, these activities were certainly uh, noted uh, quite clearly in the, uh, the SJC's uh, uh, memorandum of decision. So that's uh, what we were able to do, is to create this picture in the jury's mind that these were not simply individual homeowners, buyers and sellers that were selling a, a, a home, that this was part of their business model, this was part of the way that they had acquired and generated wealth, and uh, uh, coupled with that, we had other additional facts that we thought were quite helpful as well, namely that Mr. Gagliardi was in the construction business. A lot of the renovations that were uh, done, that, which were at issue in the lawsuit, were done by Mr. Gagliardi and his son, certainly at their direction. They were responsible for the design of the renovations. And of course, Mr. Gargliardi was not only licensed as a uh, uh, licensed as a builder in Massachusetts, but he also had a certificate uh, as a home renovator. So he knew what he was doing. This is not somebody that was just going to Home Depot or Lowe's like perhaps you or I would do on a weekend and uh, and you know, renovate a bathroom. This was something that was part of their, their business for well over 40 years
0: and one of the one of the significant facts, when you look back at that forty year history, one of the significant facts that comes out of it is that each time, almost each time, almost every time that the Gagliardis redeveloped a home, they lived in it while they were doing the renovation work. and so correct me if I'm wrong, but that was one of the reasons why. We certainly believe, the trial judge believed, and ultimately the jury believed that this home, even though the Gagliardis had lived at it for a number of years, was more than just the private sale of a home. It was actually part of this, as you um, came up with this during the trial, it was part of their business model.
1: That, correct, they, uh, the Dover home was, uh, as I recall, Uh, carried no debt. They actually obtained the money for the purchase of the Dover home by refinancing other rental properties that they had acquired, renovated, and, and of course, built up considerable equity in. Uh, What they also did is about four years before they, uh, they ultimately sold the property to the Sullivans, they had embarked on a rather extensive renovation campaign to uh, the kitchen, uh, removing a load-bearing wall, which is one of the reasons that uh, the Sullivans discovered these these problems, because of sagging floor, uh, floor and ceiling joists, uh, as well as a uh, conversion of a sunroom, what they call the so-called Tuscan room, into a three or a four season uh, room. But, and, and they touted these as part of their uh, marketing campaign when they put the house on the market. So, this was part and parcel with what they were doing. They were improving this to improve the value, to make the house more marketable. They used the proceeds from other uh, rental properties that they had acquired over the past previous four decades to acquire this. And then ultimately, they took uh, and refinanced a Dover home and paid cash of approximately $1 million for another home in Weston, which they then rented out for a period of years for approximately $38,000 per year.
0: So you touched on the experience that the Gagliardis had. And in fact, Giuseppe Gagliardi, how he was a licensed builder. He was obviously in order to obtain those licenses you have to be knowledgeable about the building code. And so I want to set the stage here for this next question, Peter. I want to go back in time to 1919 and talk about the Great Molasses Flood here in Boston. In 1919,
1: along... I wasn't there, by the
0: <laughs> I didn't think you were. In 1919, along Boston's north end sat a 50-foot-tall tank of molasses, The owner used the molasses to make alcohol and the tank held more than 2 million gallons of molasses. In mid-January of 1919, the tank exploded, unleashing a, as many observers said, a tidal wave of molasses, which toppled buildings, destroyed cars, killed 21 people, and injured many more. To prevent this catastrophe from happening again in the future governments proliferated some of the earliest building codes and inspectional programs to ensure the safety and, importantly, the structural integrity of buildings. In this way, all modern building codes and inspectional departments originated from the Great Molasses Flood. So, this episode is going to be released on January 15th of 2022, the 102nd anniversary of of the Great Molasses Flood. What role did the Great Molasses Flood, and perhaps more specifically the building code, play in the Sullivan litigation?
1: Well, there are a lot of similarities uh, between what occurred here and the Great Molasses Flood. Uh, uh, Fortunately, uh, not the tragic circumstances and consequences that uh, resulted from the great molasses flood. People lost their lives. There were, I believe, criminal charges asserted against the uh, the owners of the uh, plant and so on. Fortunately, we did not have any of that those tragic circumstances in our case, although it was clear, based upon the expert witness testimony at trial, that what had happened here, what had been uh, constructed by the Gagliardi's, knowingly so, uh, weakened the structure of both the so-called Tuscan room as well as the kitchen. And the experts told the jury that these both of these uh, uh, rooms were in danger of collapse without notice. Uh, as I'd indicated earlier, Bob, uh, the Sullivans found out about the, the problems in the kitchen when they were renovating bathrooms on the second floor and, and their builder noticed these sagging joists and of course they looked into it a little bit further and found out that a load-bearing wall had been removed in order to expand the size of the kitchen. That, this, this situation could have been far more tragic. Uh, fortunately for uh, the three members of the Sullivan family, Ted, Connie, and their daughter Christine, it was not. But unfortunately, uh, and if I can get on the, um, the soapbox very briefly, this seems to be what happens. You have a horrible tragedy like the Great Molasses Flood, And then there's a flurry of activity, and there's an enactment of of changes to the building code. The same thing happened in 1942 as a result of the uh, infamous Coconut Grove fire, where uh, hundreds of people lost their lives because of uh, uh, improper life safety uh, uh, protections that should have been uh, installed in that building as a matter of a code requirement. New life safety uh, regulations were implemented, and code uh, uh, provisions implemented as a result of that. So, but the similarities were that uh, there were corners cut with uh, with the owners of the molasses factory over in the North End, uh, and those uh, those corners uh, resulted in the collapse of the tank, and of course the the tri- tragic aftermath. So, in this particular instance, the Gagliardi's acknowledged. During depositions and they admitted a trial that they did not obtain the necessary building permits for this work, which uh, is required by law. And why is it required? Because it, it uh, mandates that uh, the building inspector go in and inspect to make sure that the work has been done in compliance with the building code this work was clearly not in compliance. It was downright dangerous. And they admitted that that they uh, knew about the building code. Mr. Gagliardi as a licensed builder was duty bound to know uh, the provisions of the code and he admitted that he did know the provisions of the code and apparently decided to sidestep them to save a few dollars. So those were were things that um, we had uh, going into this trial that we thought were very potent uh, uh, evidence of of willful and knowing uh, misconduct by the Gagliardis. And obviously the jury agreed.
0: Anyone that I have ever talked to about this case, for those very reasons that you just pointed out would, would tell you that there was an, an, there was an injustice here, that these knowing violations of the building code was a wrong that Um, that it's a wrong that required some sort of remedy. But on the flip side, you have a residential purchase and sale agreement. And as a matter of contract law, you have provisions in the purchase and sale agreement in this particular case that basically... Exculpated or exonerated the seller for practically anything. You know, these are uh, uh, there are a few of them. There are no representations, warranties, merger clauses, as is clauses. I I always sort of include them under the umbrella of an as is clause. Most residential conveyancers that draft these on a daily basis would probably tell you that those are good enough in the absence of intentional fraud to exonerate a seller from the type of litigation that we had here in the Sullivan case. But in fact, those provisions did not exonerate the Gagliardi's in this case. How did you get around these, quote unquote, as is provisions in this litigation, Peter?
1: Well, in the first instance, the, uh, the count that we uh, relied on to get around those, and I don't wanna say that we got around them in some unseemly way, uh, but the breach of the implied warranty of habitability, uh, the case law specifically holds that one cannot waive the implied warranty of habitability. You can't. You can put 16 exculpatory provisions in a purchase and sales agreement and it's not going to exculpate uh, sellers uh, that are that are subject to the implied warranty of habitability to uh, being subject to liability if that implied warranty is breached the second thing uh, is that uh, this particular purchase and sales agreement did have a rather extensive uh, exculpation clause i believe it was paragraph 34 and it went almost 30 lines uh, of, of text. But when we parsed through and you uh, were so effective on that, when you cross-examined the, uh, the counsel for the Gagliardi's on the stand during the trial, that the language that was purportedly uh, exculpatory really didn't say what the defendants believed that language said. It was not at all. Crystal clear, and of course, in that particular instance, we were able to argue obviously successfully in front of this jury that what they claimed was exculpatory language was not was in fact not exculpatory.
0: This case has um, so many different components to it, and one of which that I mentioned in the open was that you know when the when the Sullivans first discovered these issues you know all they were trying to do was get information i remember at the earliest stages of, of long before we'd filed any litigation you know the the question was just what what was done here so that the town of dover building inspector could actually issue building permits for the work that was performed and so there wouldn't be any you know insurance issues with the home, et cetera, and so forth. The Sullivans were just looking for information, and not only did the Gagliardis refuse to provide that information, um, they actually destroyed a, a good portion of that information. And so, my question to you is, you know, anybody that hears that destruction of evidence, you know, spoliation is, is the term of art that we deal with in, in litigation. You know, it's, it's just an unqualified wrong. How, how was that addressed in this litigation? And, um, what did, what did you do?
1: It was a lot of hard work, but we also had, as you will recall, no doubt, a little bit of luck. Uh, yes, uh, when you deposed mrs gagliardi uh, before the trial of course she acknowledged that yes the broker uh, her broker had reached out at the sullivan's request for information about what was done what what uh, type of renovation work was done uh in order for the sullivan's to to determine what needed to be done to fix it and uh she was advised by her counsel and this is on the record that uh, she should not talk to the sullivans or the broker anymore and uh, would not provide any uh, any of the documentation or information despite later on arguing that all of this was time barred under the six-year statute of proposed but she also admitted during the deposition as you'll also recall that she uh, at at shortly after this inquiry was was made that the she destroyed most of the records all that was left that we were able to obtain on discovery was a small handful of of uh, invoices from a uh, the uh, kitchen equipment vendor for you know, the, the refrigerator and so on. Uh, so it was uh, very powerful. Uh, but still, uh, even though we tried to get the uh, the statute of proposed defense uh, uh, removed pre-trial, the judge wanted to hear more evidence, and that's where the luck came in when I was uh, uh, cross-examining Mrs. Gagliardi uh, uh, on the stand. Uh, she let me back up. One of the things that we were trying to do uh not only at the time of the ninety-three A demand letter, but also during discovery, was to obtain the names of the contractors who did the work, uh, because we needed them to come back and apply for the building permits and so on, as required by the building inspector for the town of Dover. They refused. We had to go in uh, to get a court order, and they were ordered to uh, to produce the names and addresses of the. Uh, the, the individuals who performed uh, the renovation work along with Mr. Gagliardi, Mrs. Gagliardi and their son. And so we got that information, uh, and, and, uh, we deposed them And we obviously we found out that not only did they not perform work in accordance with the building code and uh, as well as obtained, uh, the requisite building permits, but they were told not to by Mr. Gagliardi, as I recall, now back to the back to my cross examination of Mrs. Gagliardi in the stand, uh, and I went through the the names of the individuals that had performed the work, and uh, unexpectedly, she also announced that she had failed to disclose a fourth contractor, the the kitchen cabinet contractor uh, from Central Mass that that had performed that work. That came out on a cross-examination, uh, and it was really at that point that I think we had turned the corner on uh, our efforts to get the statute of repose defense tossed because it was at that point when we filed a uh, uh, an amended motion to, uh, in limine that uh, the judge granted it. Uh, it was, as I say, a little bit of luck, but a lot of hard work, a lot of skill to get there.
0: And just to orient the listeners, in Massachusetts, the statute of repose basically bars all tort claims related to construction work six years after that work is performed. And so the fact that we didn't have all of the names, even though there was a court order in place requiring the Gagliardi's to produce those names, even though we weren't able to get the information from the gagliardis because uh, you know about all of the renovations that were performed because the vast majority of those documents were destroyed by the gagliardis the court you know at trial ultimately dismissed those those uh, those defenses because the gagliardis had violated a court order um that's correct so when people have asked about you know what's this? What was this verdict actually worth? You know, I know based on our calculations, I generally say it was it was north of two million dollars, and it comes as sort of a, a surprise to people. Or they raise their eyebrow because you know when they ask, well, how much did it cost to to repair? The actual cost of repairs was closer to two hundred and eleven thousand dollars. So the the Gagliardi's obviously believed it was much lower than two million. Um, obviously, even in their interpretation, it was much higher than two hundred eleven thousand. What was the actual value of of this jury vert, verdict, Peter? And why was there such a discrepancy between what we thought it was worth and what the Gagliardi's thought it was worth?
1: Well, all in um, uh, my memory was that the the total amount of the judgment would have, as entered, would have been somewhere around $2.5 million because, of course, you had almost 50% interest on this case. This was an old case, as well as uh, $500 plus thousand dollars in attorney's fees that we were awarded by the court uh, on our chapter 93A count. But the, the, uh, the, the principal difference, as I recall, between the plaintiff's judgment position and the defendant's judgment position was that uh, when you have multiple uh, damage awards under Chapter 93A, the question is whether or not you take the compensatory amount and then you add on the interest and then you double it. In this case, the jury found double uh, held uh, determined uh, that we were entitled to double damages or is it uh, done on the, on the judgment uh, after all of the calculations are, are done. Uh, and then, of course, then you have post-judgment interest once the judgment uh, is entered. And again, that that is accruing at uh, 12% uh, per annum. So I, I don't think that there was that much of a uh, discrepancy, maybe a half a million dollars between the plaintiff and the defendant's position. But what it res- was a result of is uh, a lack of ex- very specific, very clear uh, uh, statutory guidance and case law guidance as to how these damages are computed it's uh, Was a bit of an eye-opener to me um, Because normally what you do is you get your judgment that the uh, the clerk's office not even the judge then uh, does the uh, conducts the uh, the Calculations in this particular instance because of this issue about when does interest uh, get tacked on before or after the multiplier is uh, uh, uh is conducted. That was probably the main reason for the uh, for the discrepancy. But it's, it still was a big number by, by virtue of the fact that it was doubled, as well as a separate count, as I recall, $350,000 for the breach of the implied warranty of habitability. And then, of course, 50% uh, of the interest factor would then be added on to the judgment. Yeah, so as, you, a big number.
0: as you said, either, either way, it was a big number, far, far greater than the, the $211,000
1: um, repair work. That's correct. And but keep in mind, the Sullivans uh, stayed in this game for almost six years. They spent a tremendous amount of money to to pursue this particular claim. Not everybody has the uh, the financial wherewithal of the Sullivans to do something like this, but they did, and and ultimately uh, uh, they prevailed uh, at least at the trial court level.
0: And one of the one of the last actually the last question that I want to ask you on the on the trial um, sort of relates to that, and it's about jury consultants. You decided to retain a jury consultant on this case, and I want you to tell the listeners why you decided to use a jury consultant for this case and what that process looked like for a trial like this
1: well i've been a big fan of jury consultants for many many years maybe going back 30 years Uh, and obviously this was no no different we wanted to uh, be educated as to what the best possible juror would be for this particular case Uh, and we hired a firm uh, out of uh, North Dakota who I had used in a prior case out there Uh, we as you know we spent a considerable amount of time on mock jury voir dire which of course uh, given the fairly recent uh, change in the law in Massachusetts uh, allows attorneys to engage in panel wadir if obviously the court allows it but it hasn't been done uh, other than maybe in some criminal cases prior to that and we also wanted to get uh, uh, our assistant our, our jury consultant to assess, assist us in better understanding what uh, what our uh, typical juror would be uh, I also was very impressed with uh, what our jury consultant was able to do. We, we filed a motion in advance of the trial to get the 70-plus uh, the uh, members of the Venere. I think we were going to start a trial on a Monday, and we got the, uh, the list on Friday. And over the weekend, our jury consultant compiled almost a 400-page dossier uh, of all of the information that they could get via social media uh on each of these jurors so we knew probably a lot more than the jurors knew about themselves in terms of what they were putting on social media in terms of who they donated to uh how they voted uh, uh, what types of uh, materials they were reading what they did for work so on and so forth and then what we were able to do uh, is color code each of these uh, these uh, uh, potential uh, jurors prospective jurors in terms of you know red, green, yellow, and, uh, red being let's let's not uh, have them on our jury. Green meaning meaning yes, and then yellow, a bit of a coin flip. And our jury consultant was in the courtroom that day when we conducted the voir dire, and and was uh, was very uh, very good in helping us pick this jury. As those who are in the audience that are trial lawyers know that oftentimes. Cases are won and won or lost not by what the evidence shows, but uh, how uh, uh, the jury how the jury has been selected and the jury makeup.
0: And one of the uh, one of the anecdotes that I always share with people about our use of the jury consultant in the courtroom was that he was giving us hand signals. That's correct. When we were up at sidebar with with the judge and the jurors, and um, it was uh, quite effective and it was yeah. helpful.
1: Well, it was also effective in the sense that. Uh, we compared what we were getting uh, uh, from our jury consultant in terms of the juror intel with what the jurors had put down on their uh, their juror questionnaire, including their their uh, uh, prior contacts with the law, you know, lawsuits, criminal cases, and so on. But we found in several instances that uh, the information on the uh, the juror questionnaire was inaccurate.
0: Peter, thank you for your time today. We'll see you on the next episode. That's our show. Check out our show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bg-llp.com. Thanks for listening.